Talk <clears throat> Recorded live. Welcome to Spanish Mustangs Radio, a show about the first horses in America, where we explore from the past to the present this breed from America's history. I'm Wynne Brookhouse, and with me is my fellow Spanish Mustang lover, Jolie Alondri, who is running the controls. This episode is sponsored by www.arrowrockspanishmustangs.com. Today our topic is cowboys and mustangers, moving to the end of an era. Ulysses S. Grant wrote about a day in March of 1846, quote, A few days out from Corpus Christi, the immense herd of wild horses that ranged at the time between the Noches and the Rio Grande was seen directly in advance of the head of the column and but a few miles off. It was the very band from which the horse I was riding had been captured just a few weeks before. The column halted for a rest, and a number of officers, myself among them, rode out two or three miles to see the extent of the herd. The country was a rolling prairie, and from the higher ground, the vision was obscured only by the earth's curvature. As far as the eyes reached to our right, the herd extended. To the left, it extended equally. There was no estimating the animals in it. I have no idea that they could all have been corralled in the state of Rhode Island or Delaware at one time. If they had been, they would have been so thick that the pastures would have given out the first day. This site was at the height of the Spanish Mustangs' domination of the plains. And though it was short-lived, it was a sight that was recorded over and over in astonishment by many an American settler coming onto the Western Plains. After Texas won its independence from Mexico in 1836, the horses and cattle belonging to the Mexican ranchers between the San Antonio River and the Rio Grande became virtually free to raiders. These raiders, called cowboys, took only the most manageable animals, leaving the others to run wilder than they had before. This begins the era of the cowboys and open-range ranching. It also nurtures the growth of the Mustangers, which finally ends with the genocide of the wild Spanish Mustangs to favor the fenced ranches and the beginning of the industrialized cattle industry. These cowboys took on the ranching style and horse culture of the Mexican vaqueros, Americanized the buckaroo. In Lower Texas, cattlemen, who had generally quit raising their own mounts, had a strong preference for horses out of the rough country. Gruyers were numerous and were excellent cow horses. The color was slate or mouse with the breed characteristics of barbed legs and a dorsal stripe. The classic bucking bronc, the pot of the moon, broken two halfway up, fishing, sun fishing on the way down, hitting the ground hard enough to split a cowboy's liver, was a distinct trait of the Western Hemisphere. It changed the English style of riding with short stirrups. As the horse grew wilder, the short stirrups prevented getting a quick seat and clasping legs against the squirming horse. The stirrup was lengthened to make range riding more comfortable and effective. It was believed that the Spanish Mustangs got the trade of bucking from practice in pitching off panthers. 
However, the range way of letting horses run wild, untouched by human hands, for three or four years, before the brutal process of breaking the horse instead of gentling, is most likely the real cause for bronchi. Like the Native American and his horse, the cowboy and his horse were like an individual, almost one mind and body working together with a well-developed cow sense and a love of wild open plains. Most of these cowboys had their own remuda of horses that they rode from ranch to ranch, but also used the remuda of the ranch for which they worked. There are many actual accounts of cowboys of this period of their Spanish Mustang cow horses, and we will cover these in another show in the future. In the late 1800s, when the English-speaking ranchers moved into the Spanish zones of Texas, Many ranchers began bringing in the blooded stallions from Tennessee and elsewhere. The wild Spanish Mustang stallions were fighting off these blooded stallions. The ranchers conducted roundups on the open prairies. Participants were armed, and they had orders to kill any wild stallions that broke through the lines. In one recorded roundup by Jim Reeves, it was estimated that 15,000 horses were rounded up. As the wild stallions broke through the lines, they were shot. Colts, old mares, and old horses were trampled to death. About 200 stallions were killed. Several thousand horses were driven north and east for sale. George W. Sanders said of the event, quote, I have worked cattle from the Rio Grande to Montana, but this roundup of horses was the greatest sight I have ever seen on any range. Unlike the American the Native American, who used every part of an animal and, uh, and who selectively bred the Spanish Mustang herds for endurance, speed, and strength, the English-speaking American killed indiscriminately to protect his investment, regardless of the fact that the blooded stallions he invested in could not hold their own in a natural environment against the wild Spanish Mustang stallions, who had ruled these plains for over 200 years and it evolved to be masters of the harsh world they inherited. The Mustangers existed as long as the Vaqueros rode horses. The range way of raising horses required Mustangers to capture the Spanish Mustangs for gentling from the wild herds. Many times the Mexican families were Mustangers by tradition. Jack Thorpe recounted meeting with such a family. Quote, we saw the fast-rising dust of a band of horses approaching us at an angle. And then, as they got closer, two, routers, two riders crowding them closer, closely. One was a girl on a big white horse. As we watched, she raced alongside a sorrel that was crowding against other Mustangs to get away from her. They were all going like the wind. Presently, when she got the position she wanted, she reached over grabbed the sorrel's mane, and slipped neatly from her seat onto the wild one's back. Her saddle was a sheepskin pad, held on by a surcingle, to which were fastened two brass stirrups, the whole equipment weighing hardly more than three pounds. All she took with her when she made the glide was a hair rope about ten feet long. As the sorrel raced on at full speed, she threw a little loop over his head, tightened it, and then threw upward two half hitches around his nose, 
With only this bosal, or noseband, to guide the runaway, she passed from sight, veering out from the Mustang bunch. Immediately after she changed horses, her companion caught the reins of the white mount and led him over to where we had halted in astonishment. How's that girl going to stop her horse, I asked in Spanish. He's liable to run into the Gulf of Mexico, no? She'll be back pretty soon, he replied. He was her brother, as we learned. In about half an hour, she was back on the sorrel, now well-winded, using the hair rope as a rein and vocal. She had checked him, gradually brought him around, and was now guiding him. She was maybe 14 years old, small and watery, weighing about 70 pounds. Pony Express riders used to change horses with spectacular rapidity, but theirs were broken. This bit of a girl was skimming onto the backs of Mustangs that had never felt human hands or rope. This account of the original Mustangers defined the skill and daring required to capture the Spanish Mustangs by the Mexican families. This was not the only method employed by Mustangers through the years. They raced and roped, trapped, creased by bullets, walked down, snared, caught colts, and practically became Spanish Mustangs themselves. For over 200 years, the Mustanger was the source of horses for frontiersmen, cowboys, cavalry, and travelers. As the 1900s came to a close, and the open range started to become fenced, cowboys turned to Mustanging to make a living and to continue the free lifestyle they so loved. The gentleman rancher, one of the Spanish herds destroyed because they were competing for grazing with their cattle. And the need for the horse for transportation and exploration was giving way to the era of industrialization. The eastern market for horses was drying up, and the extermination of the Spanish herds was necessary for western expansion across the Great Plains. The introduction of blooded stallions from the east, along with the destruction of the wild Spanish stallions, have begun to taint the pure Spanish characteristics of the original herds as they dwelled from millions as they dwindled from millions to just thousands in a couple of decades. From the fifteen hundreds to the end of the eighteen hundreds, the Spanish Mustang had been an industry of horse flesh that European and Native American alike depended on for their economic, spiritual, and social moorings and played an important role in the power struggle over the lands of Western America. Without them, there would not have been less. When I set out to research this show, I found so many personal documented accounts of cowboys and mustangers that it became hard to separate just the information about the Spanish mustang during this period. The people and the mustangs were like one beam moving through the annal of history, so bound together that to tell one story is to tell them both. It was not just the stories of horses told by men and women, but it was a story of how they came to commune together, how the special breeds stole the hearts and minds of the people they came in contact with and proved themselves to be something special within the world of horse culture. Maybe it was the land that brought out the passion both for freedom and independence, endurance and fortitude, for it has surely done so with all the Native American societies. I know as I look out upon these same western plains to the far horizon, sitting on my Spanish Mustang as she snorts and sniffs the air, 
eyes and ears alert to every sound, and I feel her body buzzing with the sure joy of all the vastness, I have an inkling of the communion, of the utter freedom to be one with nature and its creatures. And that really ends the period of the Spanish Mustangs um, and uh, leaves very few left to uh, have been saved and, uh, and kept until today. And unfortunately, because of what the English-speaking ranchers and did, they killed so many stallions and lost some incredibly, most likely some really incredible breeding stock, which uh, we'll never know what it was. So, um, so what do you think there, Joey? Are you still there? Did Dave show up for us tonight? Or? Well, I, I think he had something. I know he didn't have anything to do other than just an unexpected problem. I know he was trying to make it, but I don't. Yeah, I talked I to him he, earlier. Yeah, and he said he did, he yeah. might have, yeah, or didn't know if he would or not. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, you know, it it was hard to. This was actually I thought the Indian one was going to be harder, but actually this one, I mean, all that really I could find was people who lived in that period who had the horses, cowboys, mustangers, ranchers, travelers. Do you know what I mean? Um, oh yeah, cavalrymen. And so I really couldn't write about the horses, <laughs> which is what I wanted to do. So I sort of grouped the horse, the cowboys and the mustangers together um, because you sort of end the history of it. And like I said, I'll, I want to go back and, and actually just quote a lot of these accounts. Uh, they're written down, you know, unlike now, people of that period, because they were all traveling to new places, almost very, very, you know, if you were literate, you kept an account of what you did. And, right. and so there, there, it's amazing how many accounts have survived. And, you know, and then people like you look at Ulysses S. Grant, who in 1846 was still a young man. This was yeah. before the Civil War. Um, you know, and he's with the cavalry out there. And, uh, you know, he becomes famous later, but he's writing his accounts as he's traveling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of really interesting accounts about the horses and uh their capabilities, their endurance, and things of that nature. Um, and I'm sure there's more from the Indian side of it, too, that, that I might be able to dig up over time, you know. Um, right. There's, there's a number of, of documents and books I still have to wade my way through. So I figured we'd get through this because I, I do want to start now to uh, to have us where we can actually interview and start talking with people who presently actually have Spanish Mustangs that are breeding yeah, that'd and be great. Yeah, even though you run our show, the next show, um, hopefully you'll be the first one we interview, um, and you can talk about what you're doing with the horses and how you got involved in stuff. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah, if anyone, yeah, if anyone listens to this even as a podcast later, uh, you know, and, and own Spanish Mustangs and would like to talk about them, you know, be, feel free to contact uh, me, you can get me uh, through my email, which is uh, is brookhouse.w at gmail.com, or you can reach me through www.spanishmustangs.wordpress.com, which is where uh, my blog is about the Spanish Mustangs. You'll find written versions of the radio shows there also. Uh, so that you can reread them, or if you want to send them to somebody else. Um, and uh, so, 
Yeah, it's, you know, it was hard for me writing that. You know, when I got to the end there, you know, I got really emotional about it because, you know, it, it almost makes me cry to think about uh, what I missed. <laughs> oh, I know. You know, there's, uh, there was several accounts of Gilbert Jones. Uh, he was born, to give you an idea of, of the era that he grew up in, he was born shortly after the Trail of, uh, not the Trail of Tears, the land run in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, his father actually made the land run on a Mustang um, and then moved his, went home and got his wife and, I mean, they just got married, you know, and moved yeah. on to that, uh, where he, that's where he was born. Ah, okay. So. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, Spanish Mustangs were still a part of his family's life when he was growing up. Um, those are the horses that his uncle and and his parents and, I mean, the poor people of the world, they went and found them. They didn't, you know, those are the ones that they rode, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there's so many of them out there. I mean, you know, basically... Really, anyone who was on the Western Plains at some point or another became a Mustanger because if you're, something happened to a horse, you had to get another one, you know. Right. Um, you know, some of the interesting things were the way that they would actually get them, especially the concept of creasing them by bullet, which was to, you know, to crease their, their spine right where their withers were, which would cause them to pass out. And then yeah, they not, not a lot of... Yeah, not a lot of true Mustangers did that, though, because there, no. there was too much of a chance of, I mean, they killed more than they They creased. killed more than they actually creased, yeah. <laughs> they no. definitely did. Or they ruined them, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, a lot of times they ruined them, they crippled them, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, and what's most interesting, of course, is a lot of times they ruined them just by catching them, you know, I mean, very many of the horses, and I know that in, if you read Will James's books, um, you know, who was actually was a cowboy during that period, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just basically wrote his own story about it all. But, you know, he talks about that, how when they would um, they would catch them, some, especially the stallions and stuff, that, that they would just lose all of their spirit, you know. Um, the minute they were put into captivity, they just, they just uh, you know, dwindled. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, many of them just really had that sense for independence, that they were not horses that you could keep, you know, in small corrals for very long. You know, and most people in those days, of course, didn't do that. They, they would travel many a mile on their horses, and, you know, their horses were constantly with them. So, oh, yeah, and they were, part of, they were a tool. They, they used their horses every day for transportation or working cattle or whatever. Or whatever so, they were doing, yeah. Yeah. So the horses and were outdoors, horses, they were outdoors. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these horses yeah. love a job, as you well know. I do. Yeah, they they mm-hmm. like to do something. You know? Yeah. I, even if it's even you know if you just go riding with them, that's okay. But if but if you can really get in your mind a destination and aim for that destination, then that even works even better for them. You know. But like even if it's just something like going to the mailbox and back. Once they know that they're doing something, we're, they they start to know we're going to the mailbox, you know. Yeah. Or or like yeah. yesterday, I took the answer and Ricky out. We just grazed. I mean, I I just tied the reins onto and I I had Dan, Ricky on a lead rope and rope dancer and I just let them lead the way, you know. And we just wandered around based on how they were looking for food, which is real interesting to watch 
how particular they are. They're incredibly particular about what they eat and when they eat it. You know, there'll be tons of tons of green grass sitting out there, which is what's happening right now up here in the Black Hills. I mean, there's you know the grasses that you know that grow real nice and tall, and they're up seven or eight inches. But that's not what my horses are eating right now. They're eating these little tiny tufts of grass. I don't even know what kind of grass it is, but they grow in little tiny clumps. I don't think the clumps are rounder than a silver dollar. Okay, they, are they, and then is they that don't grow grass? Huh? No, it's not buffalo grass because it sort of grows like a carpet. That doesn't that doesn't start to turn green yet. No, these are little clumps, very isolated. They're isolated. They don't tend to be together, and they would just wander around eating those, and they just avoid everything else. And I know that it's a grass that's that's just a spring rain grass, but the minute it gets warm, it's going to disappear. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. it's going to brown out, and they know that, and you know, and they, they leave the other grass alone. You know. Um, right. In fact, they don't touch the high grass at all um, through the summer, unless they really have to. I mean, if they're desperate for feed, they will, but normally they're not. They leave that grass, and then um, in the wintertime, if we get snow over a certain depth, then that's the grass they can eat because those, the, the stems, especially of the, of the um, what is it called, the long stem, um, you know, there's the long stem, is it gamma or... Uh, I can't remember now. Darn it all. My mind blanked out. But, you know, it grows about 15 inches high. And they'll use the tops because they let the tops brown off where the seeds are. And then they use that in the snow to find the grass underneath, you know. And they'll just Mm -hmm. wander over to there and dig down. Um, In fact, when we had that freak snowstorm here earlier, um, what they were eating wasn't uh, wasn't grass. We had about... Just about 12 inches, it was real heavy, hard-packed stuff because it was wet, you know. And mm-hmm. I found them, because the wind had blown in such a way that on the leeward side of the wind, on the pine trees, there was really hardly any snow, okay? And what they were doing was going from pine tree to pine tree, eating all the fresh sage that was coming up. Oh. And so for that week, all they ate was sage. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I love it when they do that because... They just smell from head to toe of sage, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Their breath yeah. smells like sage, you know, and, and they're, mm-hmm. you know, they, and they, they, that's all they were, they were just eating the sage. They were just going around and, you know, nibbling it right down to the ground. Yeah. You know, wherever there wasn't any snow, they could, you know, on the leeward side of the trees, so. Um, but, well, uh, I had, yeah, two, new, just, I had two new babies. <clears throat> uh-huh. I had a new baby yesterday and a new baby this morning. Oh, congratulations. Good. Yeah. And and were they fillies or mares? I mean, yes. oh, good. that was good when fillies are colts. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yesterday was a colt and today was a filly. And what were their colorings? Uh, yesterday's was, he's a little red um, Tobiano, but he's also got appies, or the the LP. Everybody says, well, hey, well, yeah. yeah. He's, he's got both. And then... Yeah. Um, the one today is she's a little done, and she's she's got traits, but she doesn't have a bl- blanket or anything. You know, she she may later, but she's got uh, the other LP traits that go along with it. So white sclera and mottled skin and mm-hmm. all that. Oh, sounds they sound nice. Yeah. Yeah. You, you'll have pictures up uh, of them on your site, or I'm not. I yeah, I will eventually. I I want them to unfold a little bit. 
they oh. look a little better after a few days. They're just kind of yeah, well, it's sort of fun to see. Yeah, I know it's fun to see them when they're really young and warmly like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, because most people don't get the opportunity to see things like that. I was, you know, I was out one, when um, one spring with Ricochet uh, while I was still training her to ride, and I was walking her, and uh, Dave's herd was out there, and I looked up and. Uh, we walked right up to the herd, and uh, Wyoming Moon was giving birth, so I got to watch her give birth, you know. Oh, and then I yeah. got to, and what was really cool is I got to watch how they, how the herd dealt with it. Oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. To get the, to get the uh, baby to to suckle, you know, the herd, you know, because you know the herd is all mares, you know, because Dave keeps the mares separate from the stallions in the winter, so they don't breed. And uh, what they did is they chased they chased Wyoming Moon away, and then they wouldn't let the baby get to her. And then she'd run around them. They form a circle. They formed a circle around the the baby, and then she ran around and and you know whinnied and nickered, and the baby was like struggling to get up, you know, because it was and you know and it was it really had to force itself to get up for milk, you know, and and with a mom calling it, you know, instead of just being right there. And then they'd let her in for a second, and then if the baby didn't milk, they'd push her back out again, you know, until finally the baby got up, and then, you know, they let her let her in, and the baby walked over and, and started to milk. But it was interesting how they did it, because they formed a circle around the baby, and they wouldn't let her in, you know. Yeah, they, they kind of use the adrenaline thing a lot. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. where the you know, the, we can hear mom crying her little head off, you know. <laughs> yeah. And... and uh, you know, it was it was really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to watch the whole thing because I I never you know had seen anything you know like that you you know you 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 assume the mother goes right up to them and stuff like you see with cows you know where they lick them and stuff but you know it's real important to the herd that that baby's up and walking around you know oh yeah and so they they won't let the mom in until that baby's up you know mm-hmm. they won't let her cuddle cuddle him at all or her at all because. Then it may not, you know, it may not get ready to for flight, you know. And within about a half an hour, that you know, he was moving pretty, you know, pretty decently, you know. I mean, he yeah. couldn't take off at a run, but he could definitely, you know, take go with them, you know, and they could leave if they needed to. So, um, you know, it was interesting to, uh, you know, just to watch watch that out in the wild because you know most of the time, I, I mean, I've never seen one, and I know people who keep them, you know, horses in barns many times don't see them born. You know, they'll tend to wait all night and then go get a cup of coffee, and the horse will have the will have the foal while they're getting coffee. You know, mm-hmm. so they're they're tricky that way. So. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so well, we're pretty close. We can just end it for today, I think. And uh, okay. and you know, and uh, folks, if you listen on podcast, you know, hopefully you'll download some of our other podcasts about the Spanish Mustangs and. Uh, Look at the, look at the um, blog again, which is SpanishMustangs.wordpress.com, or look at Jolie's site um, www.arrowrockspanishmustangs.com, so you can see pictures of some of the horses. And Jolie's got some nice slideshows and stuff there that are real entertaining and things. Um, and uh, we'll hopefully see you again all in two weeks when we'll interview Jolie and she'll tell you about her horses and her LP project that she's working on. So, everyone, have a nice evening. Thanks, Jolie, for running the controls for me again. And, Not a problem. Um, great. And everyone have a nice evening. Thanks. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>